We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we work and learn, and pay respect to the First Nations peoples and their elders past, present, and future. We're recording on Gadigal land. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Welcome to another season of Rewind. I'm your host, Steve Bell. This time around, we're heading back to 1996 and the release of a song written and conceived by a beloved Australian singer-songwriter for a charity compilation, the recording paid for by the company behind it, a song that was released as a single but took over 20 years to crack the top 50, a Christmas song set in Australia, who doesn't really do Christmas songs, and based in a prison, Plus the original version was over five minutes long and has no chorus. Two perfect ways to get ignored by commercial radio. Yet somehow, over the years, this song has become an Australian institution. Part of our cultural fabric. The only song I can think of that spawned its own day. One of the great mysteries of Australian rock and roll. To me, anyway. The writer is, of course, Paul Kelly. The song is his timeless classic, How to Make Gravy. And this is the story. I know it's not Christmas, but uh, where I come from, we have Christmas in weather like this. <laughs> At the height of summer, we sit down to full Christmas dinner with all the trimmings in the blazing sun. And I do believe uh, this song is the first song ever written in the history of the world to contain a recipe for gravy. And it's called How to Make Gravy. That's Paul introducing How to Make Gravy from the stage at Edmonton Folk Festival in Canada in August of 1996, taken from that festival's compilation album released later that same year. Now, gravy wasn't even in the public domain yet at this point. It was fresh, its paint still dry. You'll hear Paul later recalling how the very first time he played the song was at this very festival, but he no doubt played a few sets at the event, so if that's not the first time he ever introduced gravy... It's pretty close. These days, Paul doesn't need to introduce how to make gravy when he plays it live. Once any crowd hears those distinctive opening notes, they take it from there. It's one of the only songs he plays at pretty much every set. Paul's one of the most beloved figures in the history of Australian music, and this is his most beloved song. He named his 2010 autobiography How to Make Gravy, and he started an annual Christmas touring tradition he called Making Gravy, at least one date of which each year usually falls on or around Gravy Day, as the 21st of December is now known, having been name-checked in the song's lyrics. Don't forget, this song isn't even on a Paul Kelly studio album. It was written for a Christmas compilation, and even then, it nearly didn't happen. It was a sliding doors moment featuring James Blundell that willed it into existence. Let me explain. Now, Lindsay Field has been a guitarist and backing vocalist in John Farnham's band for over 30 years, as well as many other varied musical pursuits. But for 25 of those years, he was also the producer of the annual Spirit of Christmas compilation, which over that time raised an incredible $9 million for charity, primarily the Salvation Army. Here's Lindsay explaining how it all started back in 1994. The Spirit of Christmas was a project that was originated by Glenn Wheatley, um, with Emerald City Records and Maya, and it was basically, it started off as a one-off, 
and it was to um, as a as a charity fundraiser an idea that he put together with uh, Mark McInnes, who was an upper middle management at Meyer at the time, and had come up with this scheme. And Glenn asked me to produce the album. And so basically it was, the theory was just a Christmas album, um, all Australian artists and all the proceeds from the, the, or the profits from the proceeds go to charity. And uh, so he asked me to produce it, and I said, "Yeah, yeah, yeah. this was, was obviously the beginning of a whole twenty-five year career of that particular project for me. So it was a big learning curve, and you know, we learned a lot of lessons in those early days. Obviously, that first compilation in nineteen ninety-four, which was full of pretty mainstream acts, did pretty well because it quickly became an annual affair. And by the time we got around to the third instalment in nineteen ninety-six. Lindsay as producer was starting to cast his net a little wider, which was when he approached Paul, who despite an incredible 20-year career at this stage, still was yet to become the household name he is today. It started out pretty much middle of the road, and and, uh, and Paul was he's a little left at that point, um, but no, he was certainly somebody that I, I, I wanted to get on, you know, and in the... The first album, the first album, I didn't have a lot of choice. Second album was basically up to me to source the artists and then select the songs and try and put all of the, the mechanics together. And Paul was a natural, you know. I mean, he's just such a fabulous part of the history of Australian music. So Paul's happily signed on to be a part of this altruistic endeavour and settles on covering one of his favourite Yuletime numbers, the band's Christmas Must Be Tonight, penned by Robbie Robertson. But there's a catch. That song's been covered already on the first compilation by Aussie country singer James Blundell, which for Lindsay, back then, was too soon. Well, Blundell did it in, in 1994, and, and I thought that it was a bit soon in, to, to redo that song again. You know, later on, I, I lost that restriction. <laughs> and, I, you know, basically it was... It, it, I realised that it was a, 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 a thing of versions. So you could do, I mean, we could do whole albums of Silent Night, <laughs> different versions of it. But, yes, Blundell had done it, and, and then Paul said, okay, well, can I write something? And I just said, yeah, go ahead, you know, just, and so he did. So now Paul has a brief to write a Christmas song or a Christmas-adjacent song. Lindsay remembers it being Paul's idea for him to write it. Paul's about to tell you what happened the other way around, but ultimately that doesn't really matter. Lindsay really started the ball rolling. He uh, um, approached me about doing um, a song for the Spirit of Christmas. My, it was Myers, Myers Grace Brothers album then, and it was for the Salvation Charity for the Salvation Army, raising money for them. And uh, he asked me to, to sing a Christmas song. I picked... Um, um, Christmas Must Be Tonight by the band, written by Robbie Robertson from the band. And uh, James Blundell had already taken it. So um, it was then that Lindsay said, well, maybe you, maybe you want to try and write one yourself. Which I thought, well, I'll see what happens. We were doing some shows, the band and I, and I, I had this chord progression that I was trying out. Um, we were trying it out at sound checks. 
sounded good with the band. So that was ended up, ended up becoming um, the basis musically for the for the song. Um, I don't remember much about writing it. Writing, it. I do remember thinking, oh, you know, thinking at some stage, I don't know if I can write a Christmas song. You know, it's been so covered, so so, so well covered Christmas, and um, you know, does the world really need another Christmas song? And then. I got to thinking about well, what what is the best way to write a Christmas song? How do you want? How what's the best way to get that feeling across? And I was thinking, well, maybe maybe the the way to to come at the song is to write it from the point of view of someone who can't get home for Christmas. And as soon as I had that thought, um, my next thought was, you know, why can't they get home for Christmas? I wonder why they can't get home. And then I thought, oh. He's in prison. He can't get home because he's in prison. And then once once that I had that, that's when it sort of happened pretty quickly. It was sort of looking back in in hindsight that that's that is really uh, you could say there's a whole genre of Christmas songs that are uh, that that are you could call the can't get home for Christmas song. So I think it's uh, it's a it's a powerful way to write about Christmas. In fact, the most popular Christmas song of all, White Christmas, does exactly the same thing. The, the, talk, the talking bit, I mean, Bing Crosby made it a huge hit, but he actually left out the talking bit at the start, which was, it's a beautiful day. It's, it's a beautiful day in old LA, the orange and palm tree sway, but it's December the 24th and I'm longing to be up north. Darlene Love says those words in her version, that was on um, Phil Spector's Christmas gift for you. And, uh, yeah, so that's about someone who's far, far away from where they want to be for Christmas and can't get there. So that's one way of writing a Christmas song. Interestingly, that Australian association of Christmas with the tyranny of distance, being away from our loved ones, is nothing new. And not just because our population is spread around the coastline of this massive continent. ANU history professor Nicholas Brown speaking to the ABC in 2010, explained how Christmas as far back as colonial times was characterised by a strong sense of absence. Yeah, well, we've, you know, a nation of migrants that came a long long way. Many of us came a long way or our our parents or grandparents came from a long way to come and live here. So um, we had these ties to to countries far, far away from us and, you know, obviously can't get there. And it's the same with uh, our family at the moment. We've got my niece is in uh, England and can't come out yet. Uh, so it's, it is tough. So Paul's got the idea for his Christmas song, the protagonist in jail, so separated from his family. And the fact that he doesn't really remember writing the lyrics points to it being a quick and painless process, although he does recall getting the song's cadence from a slightly unusual source. I think it must have come... Pretty quickly, which is sometimes what happens when you sort of uh, just have the voice. It must come pretty quickly because I don't remember sort of scratching around with it too much. I got no, I've got no, old notebooks where I can see where where uh, where I, when I was first writing it. And, I mean, it's, it's there's lines crossed out and and uh, alter, alternate lines here and there, but it was it. I think it pretty much came in in a bit of a rush, and it's a. It's a talky kind of song. It's a sort of half talk, half sung. Yeah, 
I always listen to a lot of hip hop, so I think there's something there's a bit of that bit of that sort of flavor, just in in the, the sort of the rhythm of the words, and I like sometimes getting lines to jam, you know, words to jam in a line, which is which you may not think can fit, but then finding a way to make them fit that's fun. We can't forget about the actual recipe for gravy nestled away in the song's lyrics: flour, salt, a little red wine. And don't forget a dollop of tomato sauce for sweetness and that extra tang. That's actually a real-life gravy recipe Paul was handed down many moons ago. Yes, that's, that was um, from my first wife's father-in-law, Hilary. Hilary, mother of my um, son, Declan. Her dad. Uh, that was his recipe. And that, that, that was the first time I'd heard of a recipe that you put a little bit of tomato sauce in it. But it works. So I still use it. <laughs> I've read some people take offence, or well, not offence, but umbrage, I guess, to the inclusion of the sauce. Oh, yeah, it's, you know, I've had, I've had quite a bit of flack from some foodies over the years saying, you know, you don't need to put tomato sauce in it. Like, oh, well, fine, you don't have to. There's definitely no rules with gravy. We'll look at the writing of how to make gravy more in episode two when we speak to the members of his band from the recording, but for now we'll take it as read that the song is finished. Paul reached out to Lindsay the producer of the Spirit of Christmas compilation, not quite sure if his new song fit the brief, being set in a prison and no chorus and all of those dilemmas, but he needn't have worried. It was quite an amazing experience, actually, because he he rang me up and said, oh, look, mate, I've got this song that I've been playing around with that I've been writing, and he said, uh, I don't know if it's going to be very appropriate or not, Um. And I said, well, you know, what's the best way to hear it? And he said, oh, you better come over. So I went over to his place in St Kilda and sat in this little shed, which was, uh, I had to sit on the drum stool because the only, <laughs> no room for anywhere else. There was, there was a drum kit and then there was a little folding chair, a plastic chair that he sat on. And he had a, like one of those old 2B, you know, school books. You know the ruled the line school folks little cardboard cover with his lyrics in it, and he basically sat down and played me the song, and I just sat behind the kit. It, I, you know, it probably was the first time that it had been played to anybody. He might have played it to somebody in the family. I don't know, but um, and then he looked at me at the end. I didn't. I couldn't say a word. It's not that I didn't say a word. I couldn't. You know, I was just, he looked at me and I had tears running down my face and and he said, well, how, how is it? And I said, that's okay. That's it. Now, Pete Luscombe, one of Australia's greatest drummers, is also Paul Kelly's longest serving sideman by a significant margin. He started playing with Paul in 1993 after stints in the Black Sorrows and Stephen Cummings' band. These days, no doubt, many of you would also recognise him from behind the kit in the Rockwiz band. And he remembers hearing How to Make Gravy for the first time in Paul's home studio pretty much immediately after Lindsay. He said he played it to Lindsay and Lindsay was in tears by the end of it and said, yeah. So I went over to his house because I lived around the corner from him at the time and he just played it to me in the shed. I think we, Paul and I were just talking about this the other day. It's like I think Lindsay and I crossed paths. Like he, he was either just leaving having heard it, and then I heard it um, then as well. So he played me, you know, the lyrics he had. The And it, and it was it was one of those songs like every now and then, or, you know, not every now and then, but Paul often 
he'll either there'll be songs that might take shape over time, but some of them just spill straight away. The minute he's the ideas hit him, he's got the entire song and it, it spills out within a matter of minutes. And that gravy is one of those tunes. And just like Lindsay, Pete remembers having an immediate and visceral reaction upon hearing gravy for the first time. Absolutely. I was I think just the fact that it was um the whole concept of it being from the point of view of somebody in jail, you know, and just the whole family. And any of us that like I Paul and I both come from big families, so it's the lyrical, all the characters within the song start to resonate a bit more with you, you know. And they're always a little larger than life, but they're um and just the use of uh language to describe small details and uh yeah and it and it and it was one of those tunes i think by by the nature of the song because it's a chord progression that is the same throughout the song it allows it to build in intensity and follow the lyric content so that was the thing that i first noticed that we could actually you know go on the ride with the song we weren't we weren't you know sort of locked into oh, this is happening now and this is happening now and you, you sort of focused on the arrangement. This was able, this allowed you to actually get on board and play and it was, that was the thing about it that, that was really uh, made it an easy idea of how we kind of knew how it had to go. Here's an interesting aside. In How to Make Gravy the Book, on page 205, this is how Paul recounts that initial first time playing Gravy, the song, to Lindsay. The next day he sat in my small back shed while I played it to him, my head down, partly from nerves, but also to read the fresh scratch lyrics in my notebook on the floor. When I looked up at the end, he was holding his hanky. It's supposed to be a comedy, I said. I know, he replied, wiping his eyes. He said he loved the song, but still had to take it to the board, who were more inclined towards Little Drummer Boy, Good King Wenceslas and such, for approval. He did so and got it over the line, God bless him. I've been playing it ever since. Lent, Easter, Mid-Year, All Souls Day, Advent, whenever. That part about taking it to the board for approval? Lindsay now happily admits making that bit up. I had said to him, and I actually read in his book that he'd said that we had to get it past this committee at the Salvation Army. In fact, there was never a committee in the Salvation Army. That was just me covering my ass, so that if I didn't like it or think it was, wasn't going to fit, I could off the responsibility onto somebody else. But actually, in that, in you know, almost from the outset of this project, um, I'd had carte blanche to do it. So put on what you know Maya just got the, the finished product and the salvos just got the benefit of the 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 uh the sales i didn't think it was a risk at all because i loved the song and in fact it turned out that a lot of people in the salvation army when they heard it the, just the feedback i got was really good that it was their favorite song as well um so uh, my main co-producer was my wife you know julie riley <laughs> who was who's always my wise counsel and and glenn was always there for advice he was always still a part of it even though i was sort of running it but mm. yeah no that was that was me being <laughs> not sneaky but but uh 
I also didn't want to portray myself as being somebody who was the power decision maker because that wasn't what it was either. You know, it was just common sense. On a happy note, Paul did get to donate a version of Christmas Must Be Tonight, the song he wanted to do originally, for the 2001 instalment of the Spirit of Christmas compilation, Better Late Than Never. That version was recorded with Richard Pleasance, Pete Luscombe and Jerry Hale and also appears on Paul's brand new Christmas double album, Paul Kelly's Christmas Train. Wrapped in swaddling glows the Prince of Peace The wheels start turning, torches start burning And behold the wise men journey from the east How a little baby boy brings the people so much joy Son of a carpenter Mary carried the light This must be Christmas This be tonight Paul Kelly's Christmas Train is a 22-song collection spanning both time and geography with a killer array of guests helping out. But overseeing the massive project allowed Paul to think a lot about Australia's relationship with Christmas songs and how our position in the Southern Hemisphere puts us at a remove from the traditional Northern Hemisphere Christmas tropes of snow and sleighs and what have you. As Paul penned in Gravy, they say it's going to be 100 degrees, even more maybe, but that won't stop the roast. Well, I've had an interesting Christmas songs for, for quite a while. I used to do a radio show. Well, my, my son, Declan, used to do a radio show on Triple R all year round, but we he... He and I would do a Christmas special. Uh, we did, I think, five years in a row doing a Christmas. He had a weekly show, so we did a Christmas show every year. So we, we the course of that, you know, we sort of ended up discovering and collecting a whole lot of tunes. You know, I mean, there's so many great, great Christmas tunes out there. So, um, you know, we don't have a, we don't have a strong, a strong tradition. Obviously, it's the Northern Hemisphere. Started as a Northern Hemisphere festival, but um, you know, there's uh, we got um, you know, there's a few Australian songs on this one, the um, Three Drovers and um, Swing Around the Sun by Casey Bonetto. That's that's the pretty uh, third song that Casey Bonetto, who wrote um, Keating the Musical, remember ever come across that? Yeah, uh, yeah, he's a lovely songwriter, so yeah. There's a yeah, there's a few. White wine in the sun is a good one by uh, Tim Minchin. Yeah, is is that dearth though? Literally, do you reckon it's just because of the southern hemisphere thing and us being in summer, so it doesn't you know resonate with all of the snow imagery and you know slavery. Yeah, I just think it's an odd fit. I mean, you know, we, there's Christmas carols where we change the words, or we, you know, there's Australian version of um. To, uh, Partridge in a pear tree. The twelfth day of Christmas is an Australian version of that, and um, there's two you know, classical composer, um, 
was it William James? They've both got James in this a lyricist and a composer. They've both got James in their names, but one's one's Christian name and one's a surname. So there was a that they did a they did a series of um, Christmas carols that still get sung today. Um, it's Carol of the Birds, and uh, so Three Drovers is one of their, one of theirs. That's uh, oh, yeah. I just don't. Yeah, I think it's not not as um, better than the culture here as say in Europe and America. The narrative of how to make gravy puts emphasis on what is obviously a traditional family get together. I guess the brothers are driving down from Queensland, and Stella's flying in from the coast. And Paul admits that Christmas was and is a big deal for the extended Kelly family. Yeah, we've got a big family, and we, we've uh, uh, we we would we still got to get together. There's a sort of it's like a Brisbane um, a Brisbane um, you know faction now, and the Mel Victorian faction. We sort of basically split that way. So uh, sometimes there's. We all get together, but generally now with that, Brisbane Knights do their own thing and we do our own thing down here. There's big enough already here, just the Victorians, because now it's me and my siblings and our children and our children's children. So it's, you know, there's always at least 20 or 30 more going on. But our, our big event is, is Christmas Eve, really, we, when we sing carols. And then on Christmas Day, people tend to, break up and do things in different combinations, smaller groups, lots of in-laws and other, uh, <laughs> you know, other obligations. So Christmas is a bit, uh, Christmas Day is actually more low-key than Christmas Eve in recent years. Yeah. Now, at some point in time, how to make gravy morph from being simply Paul's contribution to the spirit of Christmas compilation to a commercial Paul Kelly release as well. The four-track How to Make Gravy EP credited simply to Paul Kelly, came out on the 4th of November 1996 on Paul's label, Mushroom. Here's Lindsay explaining how all that came to pass. It always had something special about it. I mean, I knew that because that's what I felt. I had an experience when I first heard that song and that experience was very, very moving. When we went ahead and recorded it, well, Paul went ahead and recorded it, but we facilitated that, um, and the record company heard it, you know, it was Mushroom White label, I think, at the time. And they obviously had the same experience. And they said, shit, this is great. You know, we want to release that. And, and so they got in touch and said, how, how can we do this? You know, can we, can we release it as a single? I think it was a single. And... Uh, uh, you know, my my job was to be on side with the record companies, the artists, like Mr. Neutral, you know, like don't tread on anybody's toes and try and make things work. And I said, well, yes, I don't have a problem with that, but any income that you make over those two months of that, that sale period of, you know, November, December, was it 1996, you have to, that has to come to the pool for the sellers. And they said, yeah, yeah, we don't have a problem with that. And in, fa- in fact, they came to a very generous, they made a very generous donation, which more than covered what it would have earned 
in the, the sales period of that. But, if, you know, as far as I'm concerned, that was a great investment for them because they got years out of that that song. But um, but it was obvious from that point that there was just something magical about it, you know. It wasn't just a song with no chorus and, you know, <laughs> no hook line. It was a beautiful story, as in, and it was, you know, written in a way that only Paul can write those stories. And, you know, it's very beautifully recorded, you know, you know, visceral, you know, it's, it's nothing fancy about it. It's like, go. <laughs> <laughs> These days, Eleanor Mackay is editor of a regional newspaper, but she had a long and storied career in the music industry. And back in 1996, she was general manager of White Records, about to transition into the role of general manager of all Mushroom labels, working closely alongside Mushroom co-founder Michael Gadinsky, who he tragically lost earlier this year. Eleanor remembers such an altruistic gesture by Mushroom as being pretty standard, given that it was for such a worthy cause. It sounds entirely plausible. Um, sounds like something Michael would do. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, like I don't know. I don't know what the behind-the-scenes deal was, but <laughs> yeah. I, I'm, I'm sure, um, I mean, people reacted really strongly to that song. And I'm, you know, I actually even remember a friend of mine who was serving some time in jail and he wrote to me and said, the people in here, they just love that song. Like it just, it just resonated for everybody. It was really one of those ones that um, kind of took on a life of its own, really. I think one of the things I... I you know, because obviously I work with Paul a lot and I thought about it a lot, but Paul is very deeply Australian without being um, sort of jingoistic or um, sort of cringeworthy. <laughs> you know, like you, you can go, you know, land down under and you go, mm, yeah, you know, big hit, but a lot of Australians sort of go, oh, okay. Um, and it's not a big sort of Aussie, 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 oi, oi, oi. For me, I remember, you know, Paul was one of the first Australian artists that I heard reference real Australian things in a way that didn't seem fake. It didn't seem like they'd sort of wedged them into the song as an afterthought, it, you know, and I think that thing about, you know, gravy and the fact that it's Christmas, you know, and it's hot, and, you know, despite that, you're still going to have a roast turkey and, you know, it's going to get messy and the family comes from everywhere. And it was a Christmas song that kind of reflected our Christmas as opposed to, you know, Jingle Bells or, you know, Snow or I don't know. I just feel like people could see themselves in those characters. Paul's manager at the time of Gravy's release was Rob Barnum. He started out as Paul's tour manager before taking the reins for a 15-year stretch and he recalls having no qualms whatsoever about Paul donating such a fine song as Gravy to charity. Paul and Christine Anu and um, other artists that I managed used to be involved in that Christmas album almost every year, which was a donation. Um, they covered the costs and all the money went to the Starlight Foundation. Um, and... 
one year that's the song that Paul came up with as a Christmas song. No one had any issues with that. Paul still had all the rights to to re-record it and do whatever he wanted with it moving forward, but they owned that recording. It wasn't really given away. It was it was used to to raise funds for a worthy cause. Mm. Um, and all the record companies, for all the artists that were involved in those records, were all supportive as well. So, you know, at, at some point you've got to, you know, give back. Um, so, you know, every everybody did their bit for free. Um, I'm sure that um, they got the studios and things like that. It was a no-cost situation and, and all the money went to a, a great cause. So. Eleanor remembers working on Gravy and that while it didn't get any love from commercial radio, too long, no chorus, etc. It did drag Paul back into the fold with Triple J and Community Radio, both of whom had moved away from his music in the years leading up to the release. Again, this is you know a reflection of me, Steve, because they they used to not let me near commercial radio because <laughs> I, I didn't really <laughs> I didn't really agree with their ethos very much. But I, I know you know Triple R and and. Double J or Triple J or whatever it was, whichever J it was at that point, they all embraced it. So that the kind of media that I dealt with, which was, you know, your print media and your public radio, they were all over it, um, even though it was a really long song. But despite all that radio love and the hard work from all involved, commercially How to Make Gravy didn't set the world on fire in 1996. The EP didn't chart at all not in the top 50, and at that point you'd be excused for thinking that that's where the story ended, that How to Make Gravy was just another great Paul Kelly song and his seemingly bottomless swag of great Paul Kelly songs. But one person suspected that the gravy story wasn't over and had done so ever since the first time he'd played it in public, back at the Edmonton Folk Festival, when he'd felt the song forge a special connection straight off the bat. I sensed it. In fact, the first time I sensed it was playing at a... Um, a folk festival in in um, Edmonton in Canada, and uh, so that would have been around August. So it was probably not long after we'd recorded it, or not long after I'd written it. But I remember it was the first time I played it. You know, I still hadn't played it with with my band, the band that recorded it, except in the studio. And I played it just myself. Uh, no, it was I had played it in one of these round robin songwriting. Groups, you know, where you, if there's four people on stage and uh, you tell a story and play a song. So I, I played that one. And I think one of the other people played along with me when I played it. I, I, I remember I could feel the song. You know, when you can feel a, you feel a song landing on the audience. So, like, I, I felt that. So was, I knew from then that I knew straight away, oh, this is, this is a working song. This song's going to work. It's something I can play. And then we started playing it and, you know, it's been in the set Ever since, we play it all, all year round. <laughs> Winter, summer, spring. <laughs> I think that first time there was, it was some, some, just someone else from the, this, uh, this, uh, this group of songwriters I was with was playing along. And I could tell that they were sort of getting, they were getting excited by it. So I just remember thinking, oh, yeah, I've got, I've got one here. We'll leave episode one with that rendition of How to Make Gravy from the Edmonton Folk Festival compilation album back in August 1996, one of the first times it was ever performed. I know it's not Christmas, but uh, where I come from, we have Christmas in weather like this. (laughs) At the height of summer, we sit down to 
full Christmas dinner with all the trimmings in the blazing sun. And I do believe uh, this song is the first song ever written in the history of the world to contain a recipe for gravy. And it's called How to Make Gravy. Hello, Dan. It's Joe here. I hope you're keeping well. It's the 21st of December. Now they're ringing the last bells. If I get good behavior, I'll be out of here by July. Won't you kiss my kids on Christmas Day? Please don't let them cry for me. I guess the brothers are driving down from Queensland. Stella's flying in from the coast. They say it's gonna be 100 degrees, even more maybe, but that won't stop the roast. Who's gonna make the gravy now? I bet it won't taste the same. Just that flour, salt, a little red wine, and don't forget a dollar for tomato sauce for sweetness and an extra tang. And give me a lot to Angus. Franken darling, tell them all I'm sorry. I screwed up this time and look at the reader. I'll be thinking of her early Christmas morning when I'm standing in line. I hear Mary's got a new boyfriend. Hope he can hold his own Do you remember the last one? What was his name again? Ah, just a little too much cologne And Roger, you know I'm even gonna miss Roger Cause there's sure as hell No one in here I wanna find Oh, praise the baby Jesus Have a Merry Christmas I'm really gonna miss it all the treasure in the trash Later in the evening I can just imagine You put on Junior Mervyn And put your tables back And you dance with Rita I know you really like her Just don't hold her too close Oh brother, please don't stab me in the back I didn't mean to say that It's just a mind that plays her Multiply these matters Turns imagination into fact Yeah, I love her badly She's the one to save me I'm gonna make some gravy I'm gonna taste the fat Yeah, tell her that I'm sorry Yeah, I love her badly Tell them all I'm sorry Kiss the sleepy children for me You know, one of these days 
I'll be making gravy I'll be making plenty I'm gonna pay them all back Thanks for making it through episode one. Please stick around for the next couple of episodes. We have a heap more cool guests for you to meet. Cheers as always to our network sponsors, Yamaha Headphones. I'll catch you all soon. Rewind with Steve Bell is a euphony podcast produced by Craig Trawick and Andrew Mars. Recorded and engineered by Zig Parker. Theme music by Dullabar. For more euphony podcasts, visit our website, Spotify, Apple, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts.